Hey guys, excited about this episode with Chris Green. Really, really good. He goes into Old Testament, uh, how to read the Bible, hermeneutics. Uh, we even talk about the sovereignty of God. He also, we talk about brain science at some point. He talks about, like Jason said, how to read the Bible well, all this stuff. So we're, we're really excited to show yeah. this episode to you guys. Yeah, I hope it encourages you. In terms of favorite taco place, I'm when I was still living at home, my dad took me to Mexico. Yeah. And somewhere in some little <laughs> village in Mexico, there was a roadside oh my taco stand <laughs> that had like pig and goat carcasses hanging in the background. Oh, yeah. nice. This is authentic. And yeah, I mean, it's it's so authentic that I, I think sometimes I might have dreamed it up. <laughs> yeah, so Dad was like, you've got to try this. And I was, of course, freaked out. I mean, I'm I'm probably 12 or 13. Right. And But but I did it. And, you know, it was just corn tortillas, onions, and this meat that they cooked right in front of us. Wow, wow. And it was incredible. Incredible, and of course the Coke. They had they had uh, right. bottles of Coke. Right, right, Mexican Coke, like the and, real stuff. Yeah, 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 real, real, real Coke. And it was hot, but it didn't matter. It yeah. was amazing. It was so, so, so good. So I've kind of been chasing that experience ever since. Ever since then. Oh man, like that. It was it was spectacular. That's amazing. <laughs> what about uh? Do you have a favorite movie or TV show? Oh man, I, I could talk about this forever <laughs> right. and ever. Uh, actually, just today though, just this morning, my wife and I got up. And got the kids to school, and they came right back home and watched Hidden Life together, uh, Malik's newest film. Oh, cool. And we had not been able to watch it in the theater, so this is my first chance to get to see it. So today, I, I'll say that's, that's my favorite film. But I love I love, I love, love Malik, and I, I, his Tree of Life, I think, is, is right, his masterpiece. Right, and right. I love, I love watching that film. I love teaching that film so yeah that, that that would be in the list that's what i would expect from a from a from a, a theologian like yourself <laughs> well i mean it it does come to me i guess naturally i i long before i was a theologian the first malik film i saw was thin red line right and i watched it at my parents house on a weekend when i was home from college and it was like nothing i'd ever seen before you know like <laughs> right. and that's when I really started to love movies, right? Like to love, uh, love what film could be. Hmm. So that, you know, Malik was kind of my, my first love and I've, I've followed, followed him closely, but, and I like, you know, what we lowbrow movies too. So, you know, so some people use the films as a kind of highbrow term and movies, right, right. Is a lowbrow term. I'm, I'm, right. there you I go. love films yeah. and movies and right. TV, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're just talking about love, then I, I would start with Malik. Sure. Love it. Love it. Anything you're reading right now? Uh, and I'd love to know maybe some great influencers. Well, what I've been reading recently is work on Job. So I, I'm, I'm working on a paper that I hope will be a chapter also in the book I'm working on, but it'll for sure be a paper on readings of the story of Job. And the history of interpretation of Job is just incredible. So, I mean, I spent a few weeks reading about Jewish history, the reception history, it's called reception history. So it's essentially studying the ways in which a text has been read and how it has affected the communities that have read it. Um, just recently, I've been reading Paul Ricoeur's 
um, work on on Job. Still trying to get my mind around what he's doing, but most of what, yeah, I would say over the last month or so, that's been right. the primary oh, focus. Cool. Re- reading, reading that. Well, that's that's really a great segue for one of the topics that we want to talk about. You know, Jason and I have really been wanting to uh, ask people that are, you know, theologians, but also just individuals that are passionate about hermeneutics and how to read the Bible well. And, you know, I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about um, about this in, in some of your other work, but from a big picture perspective, can you just give us some of your overall thoughts on on when you think about reading the Bible for for individuals? What what would be some of the things that you, you would say are pointers uh, or strategies to, to start reading the Bible well? I, I wrote a book on this topic, as you probably know, and I am revising it right now I, I don't know when i'll be done revising it but i i still agree with most of what i said <laughs> and part of what i argued in that book is is borrowed from from billy abraham who's a methodist wesleyan theologian teaches at smu he, he's kind of famous for his work on canonical theism but regardless billy abraham says that there has to be this shift in how we interpret scripture from epistemological models, which are obsessed with how our knowing of the truth works and kind of abstracts away from the text into philosophical theories about what it means for the text to be inspired and what's the right hermeneutical approach to the text. And he says the focus needs to shift from that to the soteriological, to the ways in which the Spirit uses the reading of Scripture to make us the people of God. Mm. And that seems absolutely right to me if we read scripture well we are being transformed by that experience and, and that's what's crucial and central and i i've i think that a lot of circles that i've that i've run in and been run over in <laughs> that there's a, an obsession with talking about the bible theoretically yeah but there's not actually a love for the grappling with the text themselves like getting to the reading and, and grappling with them. And they spend all the time on constructing theories that make the reading easy. Right. And make it so that only one outcome is possible from the reading. I mean, that's what I, I, I point this out to my students often, that if you look at Pentecostal denominations, classical Pentecostal denominations like the Assemblies of God, the Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal Holiness Church, Church of God in Cleveland, they start with a statement about scripture, but mostly their statements about their statements about theories about how scripture is inspired. And so they're not actually statements about scripture. They're statements about theories that you have to accept before you come to scripture, because they're trying to build theories that make it so that when you come to scripture, you get the outcome they want you to get. I don't think anyone's doing this consciously, but unconsciously, subconsciously, they feel pressure to make sure that a certain reading of scripture is the only one that's possible for people. And to do that, you can't change the text, but you can change the world around the text, the theories that you have to accept before you come to the text. And if you make those things definitive, then you have predetermined what the text right. can say. <clears throat> First uh, John one eighteen, Jesus basically says he is the revelation of what God is like. Mm-hmm. 
and then and uh, you know if you continue on he, he he can actually say you've searched the scriptures you know for in them you think is life but they actually point to me this is how i read scripture i read it through the revelation of jesus um and that would be uh, uh, my lens if you will um I don't want to make something up as I go back, but I have to have some way by which to, to read Old Testament and New Testament and yeah. somehow resolve what seems to be a different God in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament. So I'd be curious if you could speak to that. Sure. Well, I mean, I, ha- I have, yeah, a lot right, that, I, that I would want to say about it. I mean, I think part of it, so you just shut me up when, when it's time for me to shut up. No, you're good. <laughs> I think that that's that's one of the things we want to do away with right up front is the idea that the God of the Old Testament is is someone different from from the New, and that we have to find ways of reading the Old Testament essentially to save us from from its abuses. I mean, I think that's a holdover right. from right a, a deep anti-Semitism that I think is in the Christian tradition, and I I I don't hmm. think. I, I just don't think there's any truth to it at all. And I, I think if I weren't a Christian, I mean, my, my family history on my dad's side is my, my great grandfather immigrated to the States from, from Poland. He was a Polish Jew. Sulziski was the family name huh. at that point. And years ago when I found that out, it, it almost accidentally led me to reading Jewish theology. Right. And, one of the things that I, I stand convinced of now is that the Old Testament is no less gospel than the right. New is. If if you know the God who is giving the text, and part of what I think we have to be we have to say so so carefully is that Jesus is not a different one from whom the text always was speaking of whom the text was always speaking because Jesus is the one who is inspiring the text. Jesus is is the writer of the text. It's we hadn't grasped that. And I think, I think there are all kinds of reasons why that hadn't happened. Um, But I I think we ought to take the gospel gospels very seriously when they say that all of the scriptures and by which they mean what we call the old Testament all of the scriptures speak of Jesus. Mm. I think that's true. And I don't think that it's a violation of those texts to find Jesus revealed. Right. Because uh, in other words, I don't think there's a set of texts that were given by, you know, written by the Jewish people. And then Jesus comes along, reveals what God is really like. And now we can go back and kind of make raids on those texts and use them for Christian purposes. I think that the God who gave us the text is is the God of Israel and that their witness to God is faithful. I mean, this is where I I diverge from a lot of people um, that, you know, I think it's unfair to call them neo-Marcionites, but I do think there is a, a kind of impulse for a lot of Christians, especially progressive Christians, to kind of discover the beauty of the gospel and then just assume that they already know that the old Testament text is ugly and, and that that presents us with a problem. But I I, I think that's a mistake because I think the old Testament, first of all, I think the old Testament is filled with all kinds of beautiful witness to the goodness of God. 
But also, I think that where there is ugliness in the Old Testament around genocide, around the cries for the murder of your enemies, around the abuse of women, right. that again and again and again, we see that the text knows what it's doing. It knows that these things are horrible and speaks them not from a place of sanctimonious, self-righteous um, knowledge, but from a place of honesty about human experience. I just taught a course. I'm teaching a philosophy course. It starts again Thursday, but just taught a philosophy course. And one of the things I did was use biblical stories as a way into kind of philosophical questions. And I had my students read Genesis basically as a novel. Right. And one of the things you see right away is these are not, these figures in Genesis are terrifyingly real. I mean, they're, they're human in the fullest, starkest sense. And I think a lot of times when we're reacting to what, you know, when we come at it feeling as if the God of the Old Testament is a different God, actually what's happened is we don't know those texts very well. We've been told that they're horrible. And then we've read the text that we have read. We've read them through that right. lens, assuming that they're horrible, instead of realizing that, yeah, they are horrible. But the texts know they're horrible. You know, it's like when you're reading a Cormac McCarthy novel or watching a Coen Brothers movie. Of course, there are horrible things happening. Right. That doesn't mean that, I mean, that doesn't mean that somehow Cormac McCarthy wants that to happen or the Coen Brothers are valorizing right. that kind right. of evil. It's, it's a way of telling the truth about the human experience precisely to confront that evil. So I, I, I don't, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about that forever, but I, for me, if the earliest church, you know, was just apostles left marked by their experience with Jesus reading what we call the Old Testament, and that's the scripture that they say is inspired. That's the scripture that they say witnesses to Jesus. And that seems right to me. I mean, that what's happening in the Jesus moment is not him giving us a way to handle texts that are toxic, but him delivering us from the toxicity that kept us from seeing what was in the text all along. Yeah, that's good. Chris, let me ask this. Would it be fair then? Um, I don't even know how to ask this, but I guess one of the things that, you know, Pat, Jason and I have both been um, pastors in the past of, um, I did youth ministry at a couple churches and, you know, Jason's done some other pastoral work. And I guess one of the things that I've seen is that, that because it's in the Bible, God is endorsing it. Yeah, yeah, right? of course. So because it's in the, because it's in the, if we're going to talk about the authority and the inspiration of the Bible, if it's in the Bible, that means that God's endorsing it. But what I'm hearing you say there, and maybe this is an important distinction, is that, just because it's in the Bible, we still need to grapple and wrestle with it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like God is celebrating or even endorsing everything that's happening. Is that fair? Of course, yeah. I mean, and I think I think it's pretty obvious once you once you remember I mean, if you if you look at Jesus, let's let's begin there, right? And what kind of teacher was he? I mean the, the word on the street, right, is that Jesus was an accessible down-to-earth, homely figure, right, who's always talking in ways that everybody could understand. Right. But if you read the Gospels, that's not right. true at all, 
Like nobody understood right. yeah. what he was talking yeah. about. And the closer you were to him, the less you understood. Sure. I mean, the disciples are the most confused of everyone. And it's not, and and they're they're constantly badgering him about it. Like, why don't you tell us plainly? I mean, they ask him, why do you talk in parables? And his answer is, so people won't understand. Me, which, of course, is a quote from Isaiah. Right. And I think if we come to terms with that's the kind of teacher Jesus is, and he reveals the character of God, then what kind of teaching do you think God would give us? That kind of teaching. Yeah. Parables so we don't understand. Right now, I I think the point is when Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a parable because I don't want you to understand. I think that's a way of Jesus telling us this is going to be incredibly difficult and you won't understand it until you become a different kind of person. Right. But it's actually an invitation into understanding. So he's not saying, I don't want you to understand. He's warning you that for you to understand this, you'll have to become a different kind of person. And that's how I think the whole of Scripture works. And Jesus knows this about the text and reveals that to us. And the text is that way because Jesus is this way. This is the way he teaches us. He, He does not... He does not make it easy, and he doesn't make it easy because there is no way to understand what he's saying without you know, becoming different people from who we are. And that's, for me, the larger context. Then, if, if that's true, look at some of the specific parables that Jesus tells, right? Like the parable of the unjust judge that he uses to say, we should pray all the time. Well, I mean, on the face of it, that suggests that God is reluctant to, to respond to us, right? That God has to be talked right. into caring for us. Right, right. But of course that isn't true, right? Still, what what is true? Why is Jesus telling us that God is like yeah. an unjust judge? And, and so on yeah. down the line, right? And so I, when I read the Old Testament, I think that we have to make a distinction between God as he lets himself be characterized in the stories— and God as the one who inspires the stories themselves. Right. And that he's willing to let himself be misunderstood as a character in the story. Yeah. To prepare us for the fact that he will be a character in history. Right. So that the when when we read a story, you know, say the story of Abraham and Sodom, the the way that story goes, I mean, we've told it in ways to try to save God, save face for sure. God. Yeah. But actually what happened yeah. right, is God hears a rumor in heaven that these cities are really wicked, and he decides he better go see for himself. And when he gets down there, he's still not quite sure what to do and whether or not he should talk to Abraham about it. And Abraham is deeply offended and says, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Why are you asking me questions? You should know what to do. And and then God tells him what he's going to do. And Abraham says, wait a minute, you can't do that. Think about the 50, the 45, the 40. And he gets all the way down to 10 and God walks away. Yeah. Yeah. God just leaves Abraham begging. And I don't for a moment think our God is a God who walks away. I don't, I don't for a moment believe that God is a God who has to travel across the universe to find out what's happening in a city. But I do believe our God is a God who's inspired that story for a reason. And I think the reason is because our conceptions of God are so deeply broken that it's only as we grapple with those conceptions of God that we start to open ourselves up to the one who's beyond conception. That's so good. 
And so I think he, I think he wisely has given us stories in which there is a character God that is in some ways like he, him as he actually is, and is in some ways not like he is. Yeah. Yeah. And we have the work of discernment. Right? We have the work of of sorting out. Right. Yes, this is like God, and yeah. no, that isn't like God. I'm 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 enjoying how how easy it is for you to look. And say, oh yeah, that's I'm reading the Old Testament this way, because I, uh, as opposed to literally, because I, I think I think there's in the world that I'm in, um, pe- people would read the Old Testament literally, and and all of a sudden God's angry and God's doing these horrible things because it says God sure. is angry, doing these horrible yep, things. I remember when I was uh, younger. Um, uh, reading the story about David and the Moabites, he has a battle. He, he in Second Samuel, he, did, he you know they they conquer the Moabites, and then it's this random. David has them lie down and measures them off into thirds, and then every, every two yep. lengths of them he puts to death, and then the third is allowed yep. to live. And I remember reading that and just uh, actually I out loud I was in Bible college. I actually said, "What the hell?" Yeah. Like I was. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, I there, and I, I remember researching it, and there's not a lot on it. There's not a there's not a lot of rhyme or reason, and uh, and it just kind of sat on the shelf of this like, you know, um, how is David this good dude that does these horrible things, uh, and and in in the way that I understood God at the time, he was justified in it because he was a man after God's own heart. And, uh, and I was reading through the little literal lens at the time. For, so for me, the wrestling match then for the next 20 years was, um, was, was how to step into, uh, without throwing the Old Testament away, how to discover the nature of God and uh, how, to read the, how to read the Bible in such a way where it wasn't compromising my faith, um, where it wasn't compromising my ability to trust God. Um, if that makes sense. It does. Well, but I think part of this is part of what I learned from reading Jewish readers of the text and and not only contemporary Jewish readers of the text, but ancient and medieval Jewish interpreters. I mean, they, they, they know these texts are terrifying and, and they, you know, it was, I remember for me, the first the first time I encountered that was when I was very, very young. I, I couldn't have been more than five when I heard the story of Achan. And yeah. we were told the story of Achan in Sunday school. And what upset me was not that Achan was killed, but that Achan's family was killed and all of his animals, too. And I was deeply moved right. by the... By the, the thought that the animals were killed, right? You know, I could re- even at that point in my life, I could reason that maybe Aiken's wife knew she was in on the plot or something, but his kids didn't know, and right. his animals sure didn't know. Sure. And I, I can remember, I mean, like it's today. I mean, I can remember standing in my living room after church on Sunday, weeping, like just sobbing. My parents could not console me because of how angry I was oh, that God would do this. Sunday school, huh? Yeah, Sunday school. Five years old, right? Time, <laughs> just the time to introduce these texts of terror to kids. That's, that's great, man. Wow. Right. Okay. But yeah, but of course, God didn't do any such thing. But God did give us that story precisely so I right. would respond like I did. So, but the Bible says He did it. 
So that's the thing that, that I'm, I'm loving what you, because if you read it, it sure, sure seems like it was God's idea. Yeah, it's you No, know, of course. Yeah. And, and I think part of it, and I don't want to be, I've been in meetings all day, so I might be a little salty. So just uh, take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> this is good. No Go for it. I love it. But yeah. I think a literal reading is reading literarily. When we say literal reading, what we really most of the time mean is a bad reading. It's just a, it's a <laughs> flat, thoughtless reading. You know, I had an argument with someone in the church years ago. I don't even know how this came up, but we were talking about iconography, I think. And some, somehow that led to a conversation about Michelangelo. And this woman in the conversation just said, well, that's all pornography to me. And wow. yeah. I come back to that comment all the time, right? Because... I mean, Michelangelo's David sculpture is nude, but it's not pornography. Yeah. And if yeah, you uh -huh. think that, that Michelangelo's David is pornography, there's no talk about hermeneutics that's going to help at that point. Right? Like you, you see uh -huh. the world in such a way that it's not about literal versus non-literal reading. Like that's deeply perverse, ironically. It's a sexualization, sexualization of the world that's so deep that... It's almost, almost unfixable, right? I can't anticipate a way of, I mean, God, of course, can save us from ourselves and does, but I mean, there's no, there's no, it's not a matter of technique. I mean, her problem wasn't she was being too literal, right? There was something in her soul that perceived the world through, and, and, I'm, and if we knew the story, I'm sure, that, you know, she'd been abused, right? That there's a reason Right. She had been sexualized, right? And so she's now reading that back onto the world. So I'm not singling her out for mockery or anything. My, my point is just, I think a lot of what we call literal readings of the Old Testament are not mm. even literal sure. readings. Sure. They're just bad readings. And they're readings that are shaped by the fact that we come at those texts with incredible fear and prejudice and pride all intermingled, right? So the... There are all kinds of counterexamples to this, but I'll give you just a few to start to give a taste of it. I mean, one is we've got the story of Abraham, and we're told right up front, right, that he's going to be the one through whom all the all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But of course, Abraham's life is a story about his family breaking again and again and again. I mean, the story begins with him leaving his family. And then multiple times in the story, he abandons his wife to protect himself. And then, of course, what happens with him and Lot in the Sodom story, and then what happens with Lot and his daughters, yeah. and then what happens with Abraham and Hagar, and, and then Abraham and Isaac, so on and so on, right on yeah. down the line, right? So that the text is very well aware of that irony. It's very well aware that this man of faith this man called to be the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. His own family life is hell. And a literal reading is a reading that knows the text, knows that, right. knows that the text has been artfully shaped in such a way that it's trying to teach us, right? Mm. So um, in when the text tells us that Abraham takes Hagar, who is an Egyptian, of course a literal reading is He's doing to an Egyptian what later Egyptians will do to his children. So that before Egypt takes 
Abraham's children as slaves. Abraham takes a child of Egypt right. as his own slave and uses her. And again, the text knows that. I heard a, I heard a rabbi once. I can't remember his name now. I wish I could, I, I wish I could find the lecture again. Uh, it was online and I stumbled onto it. And it was a lecture about brothers in Genesis. And, and uh, Jonathan Sachs ended up using parts of this in his own book, but um, it's not quite the same as the lecture I heard. Anyway, he talked about the fact that when you read Genesis, your empathy is always with the one who's rejected. Right? Your empathy goes to Hagar and Ishmael, not to Abraham and Sarah. <laughs> when you read the story of the firstborn in Egypt being killed, your empathy is, is with those families. And he said, this rabbi, again, he's not a Christian reader. He just says, what makes you think the writers of that story didn't want you to respond that way? Wow. Hmm. Of course they wanted you to respond that way. Yeah. They, they wrote these stories in order to create moments of compassion. Right. To awaken in you. You know, I, and there's a there's a wonderful book by Arthur Waskow, who's a, a Jewish rabbi in the States now, and I think it's called God Wrestling. And in it, he tells a story about being a rabbi, working through his community, reading the different Levitical laws and the way that they talk about women and how this is a Bible study with a bunch of Jewish women and working through what the text is doing and the kind of revelations they have along the way that, oh, the text knew we would respond like this. It knew that it would make us angry to hear this. And that's why the very next story is a story about anger hmm. and so on and so on. Right. And part of what I've come to believe is because I believe Jesus Christ is the revelation of the God who gave us these texts and call the people of Israel to write them and to, and to bring them to us. Of course, I think that that character is everywhere in the confirmation, in the, in the compilation of those texts and in, and in the construction of them there, they were written under the power of the wisdom of God. Right. And I don't have to bring that to those texts. It's in the text. I just have to be a pay attention to, mm. to what's actually happening in the text. Hey guys, just a quick break to let you know that you can find Thomas and I on familystory.org. You can also sign up for the mailing list where we release weekly articles, a monthly message podcast, and then we keep you up to speed on any opportunities, teachings, uh, travels that we're doing. You guys can check out my Instagram page. I'm posting stuff on mental health, wholeness, inner healing. I also do a good amount of work with the Enneagram and I'm, I'm gonna be doing a couple of Facebook Lives here coming up. My Instagram handle is my first name, my middle initial and my last name. So that's Thomas F. Floyd. And mine is Jason Clark is. Jason Clark is. Yes, yes. Is what? Is there? Is whatever you need him to be. Jason Whatever Clark you is. want him to be. Yeah, so go to familystory.org or check out our Instagram handles for more content and information. Bless you guys, we'll get back to this podcast. I, I'm i I'm jiving with what you're saying, but I think the interesting thing, you know, Jason and I both grew up in the church. For me, it's the things you're saying and the ways in which I've read the Bible more faithfully, I believe. The interesting thing is that 
it didn't come from me and maybe this is a controversial thing to say but oh well it didn't come from me reading the bible more mm -hmm. like it actually came from me reading um maybe different authors or different scholars or uh, people asking questions like how does that work yeah. right and so it's really and and i don't know if you have come across this but for for me and my charismatic upbringing there's kind of a anti-intellectualism that goes on where yeah. if you if you read if you read things outside of the bible that help you read the bible in a more faithful way yeah. then that you know that that's that's a slippery slope right that's scary and so everything's a slippery I guess, slope yeah in that community right <laughs> <laughs> right and so i don't know like i guess what i'm asking is how how do we ha knowing what I kind of told you about my own experience about how it took, and I know I've heard you have some disagreements with what N.T. Wright kind of writes about, which I don't agree with everything Wright says, but for me, he was really helpful in being like, oh, there's a whole historical like component to this. And there's mm -hmm. people who are like Walter Brueggemann and, you know, Stanley Harwas and all, and all these people, they were the ones that really helped tremendously for me, for, for me to even read it, read the Bible well. Um, and so it, it's interesting that it it took me it took me outside of this whole idea of it's just you and the Bible. Of so course, yeah. I don't even know if there's a question there, Chris. Oh, I think there <laughs> you is. Just I mean, go with it's that? interesting <laughs> origin. So early church father, whom I, I I guess we can call him a church father. I'm going to um, some some yes. some people don't want to claim him as a father, but origin <laughs> he has this idea that you shouldn't let people read scripture until they've learned to read other texts well, so that you actually cut your teeth on reading philosophy and history. And then you come to the text later. And I think it's making Thomas point very similar to the one you're making is that you kind of have to shape people to read before they can read yeah. well. And we're, we're basically giving people a Bible, telling them that it's easy and right. And then assuming that they'll figure it out on their own, that's part of the problem, right? So I think some of it is, yeah, you know, we've we've shaped people to see the Bible a certain way, and then give them the Bible, and of course they're going to see it the way we've shaped them to see it. And and unfortunately, the default mode now is to say that that's the plain reading of the text or the literal reading, but it isn't plain, right. and it isn't literal, right? It's 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 just a bad reading. Yeah. yeah. Another passage that comes to mind is Bonhoeffer in his, I think it's in his ethics that was incomplete when he was killed, but there's a passage in, in the ethics somewhere. I think it's in the ethics. I, don't, don't quote me on this. I, I can't remember where it is in Bonhoeffer, but um, he talks about how the Bible belongs to the clergy. The gospel belongs to the congregation. And he makes the mm -hmm. argument that to read the Bible well, you have to be formed for it. Then you can mm -hmm. proclaim the gospel, and the gospel is for everyone, right? The, the, can be heard, and that, that's a deeply, deeply Lutheran point to make. That I think is a, is essentially right. I would want to say everyone can read the Bible if if they can read and should be able to, but they should be taught that reading the Bible doesn't uh, doesn't work like. Well, they need to be taught away from what we've what we've been told. 
um, right. kind of stay right. from that I, that way of reading, which I think is yeah is you know problematic in just almost endless ways. I mean, we could spend days and days and days talking about yeah yeah all, all of those problems. I share this with my kids, and I'm I'm going to shift gears and ask you a question that's near and dear to my heart. But just to comment on that, I um, for me being um, uh, I, I often will joke with Thomas that I, I've lived in my house for 15 years and I can tell you the name of, of, of 10 roads and that's being generous, uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm not wired to retain that, uh, information that sits outside the context of relationship. And so one of the ways in which I've read the Bible, um, which isn't to suggest that I'm not reading all these other books and I'm not studying, but one of the ways that I've read the Bible that's been most uh, transformative in the last, particularly the last five or six years is is and I've given my kids this is, is that is that God looks like Jesus, and um, and and so when you read the Bible, um, be, it's okay to say I don't know, but He's good, mm-hmm. and and then lean into discovering, uh, you know, maybe what that text does mean, uh, which is partly what we're doing with you and and and, sure. uh, but I love the idea that anyone can anyone can read it. And, and in that understanding to say, look at, for me, the most transformative way that I've done so is uh, I don't know, but he's, he's good. And then I can go back in to begin to really uh, break it down in a way that um, doesn't, doesn't scare me the way it used to. But the way I was taught to read in the past yeah. was pretty scary. Yeah. But, but I'll use that maybe, or if you want to add thoughts to that, go for it. But I do want to ask you about the sovereignty of God here. No, no, hit me. Hit me with it. Well, to take that thought... Um, I, you know, the sovereignty of God is near and dear to my heart. And uh, I know that you've, you've spoken on this. And, and I know that when you describe the sovereignty of God, you've actually got a message out there that I highly recommend people looking out, looking for, uh, where, you, um, where you say God is not in control, that that is a flawed way by which to describe his sovereignty. And I'd love you to speak to that. And I know that's a big topic and um, not one that we're afraid of, but love for you to just maybe, if, if there's a way to share uh, what you mean by that and, and, and why you found that so important to go after. Sure. Well, that all began for me in a, well, at least it, I don't know if it began, but it kind of all came to a head for me with a really bad sermon I heard called God is in control. And the very next week right, yeah. I was able to preach and my sermon was God is not in control. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah. directly reaction, uh, a reaction against, and I think I talk about that in the, in this right, you do. Um, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I think, I think this is the big picture view. I think mostly we, without realizing it, we think of God as a really powerful being, and we think we know how power works. And so, power is ultimately coercive. It gets its will through control and right we i think again without ever articulating in quite these terms i think we think of god as a powerful being who sometimes is persuasive and sometimes is coercive and sometimes is passive right so sometimes he wants to get something done he's pretty diplomatic about it you know he'll talk to us sometimes he just doesn't do anything just lets us do what we want to do and then sometimes he wants something so badly that if he can't talk us into doing it the way he wants, he just makes it happen himself coercively. And right. I think all of that's heretically wrong. Like just 
utterly, utterly mistaken. And right. it's it's rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of, of who God is, his character, but also what God is like. So not only his character, but his nature. Right. And so control is not possible for God. It's not it's any more than lying is. Right. Because control is a, is is something that a lesser uh, a creator, a created power might do to another creature. But God, it's not even something, again, any more than lying would be, that's in the realm of possibility right. for God. Right. That's not how divine power works. So it's not just the case that God could control us and doesn't. That would be a character issue. It's it's that he who he is and what he is are identical, right? So in in Aquinas's phrase, God's essence and his existence are the same. And so we, we might say it like this, although this is not quite what Thomas meant. We could say God's character and his nature are the same. So when we say God is love, we're not only talking about his character, we're talking about his very nature. And his nature is yep. such that he does love does not control, right? Yeah. Not meaning, therefore, that he's passive or that he's just persuasive. But that God's way of being with us is creative. Right. Right? So one of the ways I put this to my students all the time is to say, God doesn't cause anything. God creates. And we don't know what that, we can't create in that sense. We cause things. We act and react. But God never reacts and never causes, but creates. Love that. And is never passive. He's never just not being himself. That's good. And and yet is always with us in a way that is life giving and is is loving. You know, I mean, to, to cut to the chase, I mean, everything God does is true to who He is, and every everything He is is love. And, and therefore, that notion of control is literally impossible. That's good. That's good. I, I use this analogy when I'm first introducing the con the concept. Um, I, I I use the the term control and I say you know if mm -hmm. if you say Jason's in control of the car that's a good thing yeah but if you say Jason's in control of his wife or Jason's in control of his kids or you start to you start to apply that uh, that understanding to to relationship now you've broken down trust and then therefore access to intimacy I love what you said that that, that the nature of God is love and so the control is actually um, contrary uh, to his nature and I, and I take that car analogy, I'd be curious, I take that car analogy farther to say the reality is, is that um, Jason is only in control, Jason in control of a car is neither good or bad, um, because Jason is ultimately in control of himself, and self-control is, is, is the evidence of freedom in our mm -hmm. lives. And so Jason in control of the car is good, if Jason's following the traffic laws, Jason in control of the car is bad if he's running people over. And uh, so control in, its, in and of itself is, is, a, is, a, is a very flawed way to understand him. And, and then practically the reason, of course, is, is, and I think, I know you've pastored, and I, and I think I'd love to hear you speak to this, because um, for me, the reason I wrote the book was kind of like you. It was, it was a little bit reactionary, because I was, I was seeing how, um, how hard it was for people to access a relationship with God, or are able to trust God, and and uh, I, f I felt like one of the one of the greatest issues in the church in, in this teaching is that um, someone has a 
a horrible thing happen in their life, a lost one, a, a lost loved one, or and then someone else comes along and says God is in control, and the very the very one that they're meant to find comfort in is now the one responsible for their pain, and cuts them off from access to intimacy and trust. And so that's partly why I wrote it. And I would imagine um, that that would have been your concern with the message you heard. It, it's quite it's quite um, damaging to someone's faith. It is damaging. Well, well, yeah, and, and I mean, so I think this is this is incredibly complex reality because, you know, I think human beings are we're broken, and yet remain even in that brokenness, kind of opened up to God and opened up to one another in ways that that means sometimes we can find comfort in lies and can't find comfort in truth. Right. You know, so I think there, I've met people who are comforted by the fact. Yes. That they think God is in control. Yeah. They, they, you know, I, I just, just today I was reading. So the, um, I had known this, some of this for a long time about Nagasaki when it was bombed. It was a, it was known as a Christian city in Japan. Hmm. And of course the bomb exploded over the cathedral in Nagasaki. And, um, there's a, a what I, one of the things I learned today is that there was a saying in Japan after the war that Hiroshima seethes and Nagasaki prays, and huh. the you know, the idea was that Hiroshima was the was a kind of traditional Japanese city that raged in response to what happened, right. but right. Nagasaki did not rage, and in part it did not rage because its Catholicism huh. was rooted in martyr martyr theology. Okay. And anyway, it leads up to one of the physicians who was on the ground caring for people in the aftermath of the bombing ended up giving a speech. So in, I think it was November of that year, he gave a speech for the victims of the bombing. And in his speech, he says, this was God's doing. Mm -hmm. He made a sacrifice of our city for the sake of the whole world. We were innocent and we are reenacting the Jesus story, essentially. Hmm. I think wow. that's completely mistaken, right? But, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's in the heat, literally in the heat. I mean, he was deeply wounded, personally wounded, and ended up dying from radiation. I mean, from cancer caused by the radiation. Right, yeah. So there's a part of me that feels like, how much can I say about that? I mean, he lived right. it. Sure, yeah. In yeah. a way that I, I did not and cannot live. Yeah. I think what he said about it is entirely mistaken. I mean, he talks even about how he, uh, in, in that speech, he talks about how the plan was not to bomb Nagasaki, but another city, and then the skies were too cloudy. And huh. the, the, the plan was not to bomb that section of the city, but another section, and the wind blew the bomb over the cathedral. And he reads all that as providential, as sure. God was enacting all this. I think all that's bogus. Right. But, but I do... I do kind of recognize that, I mean, he was in the midst of that reality and found comfort in that in a way yeah. that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly to do with that. Right. Um, I, but I, I, but I reject it. I don't think any of that's true. I don't think God is, I mean, part of what I would argue is that God not only does not do evil, he doesn't use evil. Yeah. He doesn't use evil for good. Yeah, that's right. And when he does good, he, do, he does good after evil to expose the evil as evil. He doesn't let the evil happen so he can use the evil to make a good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's good. Yeah. 
So, I, I mean, I, I have a very radically different approach to this. But one of the things that I, I, I never want to forget is that, you know, what I find comforting isn't going to be comforting for others. And whether or not it's comforting may or may not be a good judge of whether or not it's true. And some people, I would think, should be damaged by talking about God the way that they do. But it's not obvious that they are. Yeah. And I, I don't know what to make of all that. I mean, I think it's just that's how complex we are as creatures. And and so you've got the complexity of human being plus the mystery of God. Sure. And, I, and I think that just kind of gets that kind of gets overwhelming. The last thing I'll say on this is I think we do need to make sure that we don't try to save God from doing evil by making him passive. Right. So I, I told you, I think most of us think of God as a powerful being. Who, who basically has three modes. You know, he is talkative, trying to persuade us to do what he wants, or coercive, making us do what he wants, or he's passive. And I think all three are mistaken. Yeah. I think that all three of them are projections onto God of the mm -hmm. way our power works. Yeah. God's word is creative. God is never passive and is incapable of coercion. That's good. So I, I think... But to think that way, it, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, there's no elevator pitch. I gave a talk uh, at a retreat a couple of weeks ago um, on, on the problem of evil. And I talked about some of these ideas at, at length. And afterwards, this man caught me and said, hey, that was great, but I don't think I understood much of it. He was like, I need, I need an elevator pitch. I need you to tell me all that in two minutes. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah and I was like, there, there is no way, right? There is no way <laughs> to talk about these things in two minutes. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and if it were, you know, it, you might find it helpful. I mean, he might have, if I had given him an elevator pitch, maybe he would have found it helpful, but I still think it would be false. Right. Even if, even if he, you know, in the moment felt like it was helpful for him. Right, yeah. I, I've... Uh... I, I love that you're there's room there for for our humanity and you know I've I have because I've written the book I uh, with that title I I have lots and lots of conversations and and for me the the goal is is never to take away what is um, uh, in any way um, a, a connection between you and God so if control is of course yeah 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 yeah, if controls the language that's working, it's wonderful. Uh, one of the stories I use is, is um, when my, my daughter Eva, uh, whenever mom would leave, she, was, she would cling to mama. And whenever mom would leave the room, she, you know, she had to sneak away or she, Eva would just throw a fit for the first year, year and a half of her, her life. And I remember Karen, my wife, she would go out to get the, she wouldn't be thinking, because normally she would think it through. She wouldn't just leave us all in the lurch, you know with this crying a little girl but but sometimes when she'd go to get the mail she'd forget <clears throat> that um this little girl was there following around watching her every move and and she'd walk out the door close the door and my daughter would just bawl she'd fall apart and so i'd come running in and i would pick her up and i would and i'd want to take her i'd take her right to the door lift her up so she could see out the window that mom is literally just 10 feet away at the at the mailbox but you couldn't console her couldn't get her to look and it, and what it was so beautiful for me was uh was i realized that god is he's good with every place we're at you know he he's going to come pick us our understanding is uh is is our understanding but he's going to come and pick us up he's going to try and show us 
from his perspective what's going on, but he's he's also just going to pick us up because I learned as a dad yeah. just pick her up, just love on her. That's great. Yeah. And uh, and with her perspective where it is right now, that's my best thing to do. Mom will be back in a minute. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. And and just to be just just to clarify what I was saying before, I'm I'm not I'm not quite saying that if people find it comforting, we shouldn't challenge it. Right. I just am, I'm challenged by the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. There are ideas mm-hmm. that to me are so obviously damaging, so obviously perverse, but for other people are consoling and reassuring. And I I think theologically, I think this all comes back to what we think is happening on the cross. Yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah. the way we internalize what's happening with Jesus, I think becomes theologically the way in which we make sense of all suffering. I mean, how could it not? Right. Um, but, but I just, I, I just want to, I, I guess I just want to acknowledge the fact that I'm, I'm bewildered by what people do and don't find comforting, you know, the, that words. And, and I'm not sure how trustworthy that is in terms of bringing relief to people. I mean, I think, you know, I have a, I have a colleague who, his way of talking about this is, is related to open theism. I'm not sure how familiar you are with open theism. Yeah. Greg Boyd um, talks about that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Greg is a great example of this. Um, Tom Ord is another example. Ken Archer is the, the colleague and Ken and I talk about this a lot. And there are a lot of people, Clark Pinnock was another major figure who held to a similar view. There are a lot of people who were deeply comforted by that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I find it even more troubling than the, controlling doctrine but right but i'm constantly kind of running up against the fact that there are a lot of people for whom that that works in some way and i and i just i'm I'm, i want to acknowledge that bewilderment not 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 even to say that you know it shouldn't be challenged it just you know, I think it does exist in the world right yeah people find all kinds of things comforting yeah part of this um, you know, my day job, Chris, is I'm a, I'm a mental health therapist. So I, um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm a counselor. And yeah. one of the things that I've, that I've found in regards to this conversation is that how much of our upbringing really shapes our reality about what we think about God. And yeah. so depending on, you know, how, how we attach not only to our caregivers, but just people in our life that are important. Um, we can really project things onto God that that God doesn't really even believe about himself. And, <laughs> and, and that, and I want to be really careful in, I mean, I, I want to be careful and not, uh, and I, I know you're not doing this and Jason's not doing this. None of us are doing it. And, but I don't want to mock that, but I also want to say there's, there's a reason <laughs> there's a reason why you're believing the things that you're believing. And some of it has to do with just life circumstances. Absolutely. You know, our, a, Absolutely. a lot of the research that's coming out in my field has a lot to do with brain science. And mm. so one of the things that's coming out in the literature is that we're not neurobiologically wired for safety. Like we just want to feel safe and yeah. more than, and that can look, different for different people so for some people it it looks like impulsivity and wanting to take risks so it's not necessarily like uh not wanting to take risks kind of thing but i i do feel like sometimes there is a safety in knowing that when your life is 
going to hell, <laughs> that there is there's someone that is in control, right? I think that's maybe where that comes from. It's this idea of, well, my life, I but but I know the plans that God has for me, and He's in control, right? Yeah, <laughs> and right. Um, yeah, absolutely, Tom. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that there are ways in which some of this I think is complicated by who it is that teaches you these things. You know, so right. if you yeah. if you feel drawn to someone, you accept their ideas not because their ideas are persuasive on their own terms, but because that person yeah. feels safe to you, yeah. or yeah. or vice versa. Maybe something is true, but something about the person who's saying it unnerves you, right? And so you can't you can't hear the truth. Yeah. Or yeah. I think I think too, um, ideas that are easy to understand easy to grasp sometimes for some people the very fact of grasping that is comforting so if they hear a teaching right. that they can quickly grasp you know if they can get an elevator pitch and walk away they've grasped it and that that feeling of having being able to get their hands around it just that feeling is good so it's not even so much what they grasp just that they get right. to grasp something whereas other people and i'm I, I i'm certainly one like this that i distrust what i'm able to grasp Right. So what I'm able mm. to get my hands around, I immediately distrust it, right? which has right. You know, there certain advantages to that. And there are a lot of disadvantages to being that kind of person. <laughs> right? um, yeah. And so I think I think a lot of this, you know, again, the, the complexity of human being is just astounding. And, and that doesn't even get us to the conversation about the mystery of God. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's some of what we're acknowledging here. And I think absolutely, you know, talking about the brain. I mean, I read earlier today a piece about um, a woman who had gone to the acupuncturist and the acupuncturist had said, you know, I don't mean to be indelicate, but I don't think we can proceed with this unless you talk to me about whether or not you're in therapy, because I can tell from the way wow. you're holding your body that you're, yes. that you've been sexually abused. And wow. this is going to awaken your body when I start treating your body, your body is going to respond to this and it's yes, going to create wow. all kinds of responses for you. So, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a famous book, you know, the body keeps the score, the, the oh, idea yeah. that, you know, yeah. that trauma, we carry it around in our bodies. And I think our, our theology often is just a reflection of what our body needs, our brain needs. Yes. Um, and, and that is, I, I think that's an important is... part of this conversation. Well, and that's so good because in the tradition that I grew up in too, we are we are told to distrust our bodies, right? Yes. When, when you hear yes. about the flesh, and so yeah, it's exactly. to me, so many of the people that I see that are believers, I actually have to engage in a process with mm -hmm. them where I have mm -hmm. to tell them that it, you know, it's okay to trust what your body's telling you, and for them, and for me, even this is one my own journey too. That can become, I mean, it's just really confusing, <laughs> right? When you're when you're told that your body or your flesh or whatever language you want to use is the thing you should actually distrust the most. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really um, good point, Thomas. Yeah, that's a really man, good I point. Could, I, I could talk about and the idea that we <laughs> just have power over our bodies all the time, anyway. Right? So not only should we distrust it, but if we have the right kind of faith, we can kind of make our bodies come in line, um, right? Whenever we want to. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a part of the problem, too. Right. Well, Chris, this has been just so good. Uh, we yeah. I've, I've you know, I've learned a lot and um, 
we're we're just really thankful and grateful for your work. Where where can people find your stuff if they want to look you up? Oh man, I don't know. I'm terrible at this self promotion stuff. <laughs> uh, I have a few books. I mean, I think probably the place to start is you know. So I have some academic books, but probably the place to start is a book called Surprised by God. It's less than a hundred pages, and it's you know no footnotes or anything like that. Just kind of a series of reflections on on the character and nature of God and what that means for, yeah, for the mm-hmm. Christian life. So I think that's probably the the way in. Um, some of the more academic books I've done, you know, a book on hermeneutics that, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm revising now. So you might wait for the revision. I don't know when when that'll come. Um, right. But the 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 little there's a little book for those who are really into theology. I did a little book on Robert Jensen. Uh, who's a Lutheran theologian who talks a lot about some of these same themes, both hermeneutics and the problem of evil. So for the, for the theology nerds in the, in the crowd, um, that might be worth taking a look at. Cool. That's awesome. We've also been asking all of the people we interview, other people that um, you would suggest that we may check out that we're not maybe aware of. Do you have any other names or people that you would point us to? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say a few names right now off the top of my head and then I'm going to remember some more sure. and, sure. and sure. have you, have you interview them. But, um, one of my colleagues here and he's also my pastor, Robbie Waddell, I highly recommend him. I mean, I think he's, yeah. he's definitely someone to engage on, on lots of, he's a new Testament scholar. So he comes at a lot cool. of these questions from, from that perspective. But, um, I heard you with him in the Zeitcast uh, about the Book of Revelation, oh, and that was phenomenal. That was yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Robbie's so good. He's so 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 good. We teach yeah. some courses together here, and and huh. of course he's the pastor at the church, and I speak. I, I, the joke is I speak when he's not here, um, so he doesn't <laughs> have to hear me speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think. Yeah, he's he's someone I would definitely recommend. We appreciate you taking the time and your heart. Thank you, guys. This has been great. This has been really, really lovely, and um, I I love the questions you're asking, and I hope I hope this just kind of keeps leading you and the people who are listening to you, just kind of leading you down the road. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you, man. We're grateful for having this time with you. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks, thanks Chris. Bless you, man. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope it blessed and, and you're encouraged. Um, subscribe, follow us on social media. Um, We just appreciate uh, if you could leave a review. Uh, If you want to find out more about us, uh, you can go to afamilystory.org where you can also find uh, all of our our tweets and Twitters and and social media stuff, right? You can follow Thomas on Twitter. You should do that. And also, if you uh, want to get a hold of us, uh, Jason at AFamilyStory.org. If you guys have any questions, please, please feel free to reach out. We want to interact. We are excited to be doing this, and yeah. thank you guys for listening.